Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? You know how painful it is. Asseval helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Esevel, E-S-E-V-E-L.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to BRAVE. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Au, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays, for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shuyen Ko, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays, for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey, Shuyen. Two big topics that seems to be on everybody's mind in Southeast Asia. The first is the Singapore budget, since so many people <laughs> are impacted by all the cash that's floating around. The second, of course, is generative AI. So lots of stuff about the press and so forth, but everyone's asking, like, how does it apply to Southeast Asia? So let's talk about our favorite dollars, dollars, dollars. What do you think about the Singapore budget? Show me budget? the money. Show me the money. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it continues to be a fairly pragmatic budget, which is in line with what we would expect. There are a number of schemes that have been, I guess, topped up is what we like to say here in Singapore. And I think maybe aside from the dollars, what is perhaps interesting is to ask the question, like, what is the desired outcome? of the schemes and do we believe that they actually drive the behavior we are trying to get and so that's i think the more interesting question for me if you think about ecosystems we always say capital talent and market those are the things that you need for a thriving ecosystem i would add one more which is mindset i actually think singapore and the region actually has a fair amount of capital and so I don't necessarily always think money is the problem. It's not that lack of money is stopping people. But on the margin, maybe you can incent some additional behaviors. I think the money is actually more important to impact mindset rather than the physical dollars themselves. It's more a signal to say, hey, this is important. We care about it. Parents, don't worry if your kids are doing this crazy startup thing. Innovation is important to us. I think the signaling value is actually more important than the actual dollars in that I'm a little bit skeptical that Steve Jobs didn't write like 100-page grant proposals before deciding he needed to invent new stuff. That's not the path. So yeah, I'll just put that out there first, which is I think the question is on the margin, does it change behavior? If you weren't going to expand overseas, does the existence of the market expansion grant make you expand overseas? Should it? And if you were going to expand already, then it's just cash. And it didn't really change your decision making. And so I, I think that's like an open question. I think 
some of this money actually funds more like knowledge sharing and network programs to help people build networks in new markets. And I think that's probably to me more valuable than the literal cash. Although you know, no startup is going to be like, yeah, don't give me the money. But yeah, I'm curious what you think, Jeremy. Definitely agree with you about signaling. I think it's not just externally and to the founders, but also to the government as well. I've definitely know a founder that was expanding to Japan. Some of it was financial support, but a big chunk of it was actually getting help from the ambassador and the local embassy to actually build in the connections because Japan is not an easy market to enter from outside. I think there was a nice priority signalization that this kind of like money talks and action is really important. So like you said, I think a lot of his knowledge sharing. I think where I defer with you slightly is like this part about does it really matter as well in terms of creating outcomes? And I think I look at it in two different ways. I think the first is Singapore obviously is a strong country, similar actually in terms of GDP per capita in many ways and education outcomes to Malaysia and Thailand, right? And Southeast Asia. But I think the capital availability has been pretty high, right? And so some of the moves for the government to not only bring in investment, but also to incentivize that investment to go towards startups has jump-started the ecosystem with a high capital availability, which again, kickstarts the whole like flywheel, right? Of like accelerators and cultural change for founders to come up on one hand. And the second hand is, I think the world is moving towards more subsidies and protectionism, right? I was discussing with a Harvard professor and his point of view was, for example, Singapore has historically been a semiconductor place as part of the global supply chain, especially when semiconductors were relatively global and distributed. Since of the decoupling, America's desperately trying to reshore it <laughs> to themselves. And then China's also trying to reshore semiconductors to themselves as well. And basically, both China and America are both throwing a ton of money. And so I think the truth of the matter is America and China can throw way more money at their own factories than they would Singapore could, right, for its own domestic semiconductors. And this is parallel um, in terms of cash subsidies. But I think the other angle that Singapore primarily has done is through tax minimization, right? So tax rebates and credits. And with the recent global tax reforms driven by President Biden, good for America for making sure there's less tax avoidance from MNCs. But I think it removes a strong pillar of economic attraction, right, for multinational companies to come to Singapore. And actually a very large chunk, $4 billion under this National Productivity Fund is actually just devoted to attracting MNCs that were primarily in the past been attracted by tax credits. So I, I think there's, this might be the new normal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the semiconductor point, I think that's a much longer conversation, right? Which is that I think on the U.S. side, you've got the R&D talent, but you don't necessarily have the production talent or the process knowledge. And then, of course, the U.S. is actively trying to deny that process knowledge to China on top of denying access to the actual machinery that produces semiconductors right through their targeted sanctions or blockings programs. I can't remember the name of the actual program. But yeah, I think it's a worthy question to ask, what is Singapore's role going to be in that? Well, we did have a big semiconductor project in the 80s. We had National Semiconductor, which we sold to the Europeans. Uh, and so I think there's a question of what is the sliver that we can own that it makes sense and is strategic and isn't just buoyed by subsidies. But yeah, I think the tax, the decline of the tax credit, I guess, as a carrot is an interesting one. 
but cash alone, I think, doesn't bring people, right? Because you still need, I think, these other pillars, which is you still need talent. And I think this has been a complaint on the tech side, which is we offer a bunch of carrots for MNCs, big tech companies to come. We tie it to employment goals. You need to hire X number of Singaporeans or people onshore in those roles. And the MNCs run to hit those targets. They can pay way more than startups can. So they essentially crowd out startups from the talent market or raise salaries across the board, which is really challenging for startups as well. So I think there are these second and third order consequences of some of these actions that I don't know if we necessarily always think through or see when the policies are first rolled out. 100% agree. I think also it changes the quality and the type of jobs that are available. So a lot of multinational corporations, they're building out sales or local marketing, but not necessarily locating engineering or key product management roles in Southeast Asia because Quarkus, that has changed. Example, that's US. That's starting that to change. Changed. Stripe uh, but, is an engineering center. Yeah, Google yeah. has a bunch of product and engineering teams here around their MBU business. And I, I have seen a number of people whose programs are actually tied to technical talent. It's not tied to sales and marketing. Um, yeah, I mean, that's I where startups are suffer the most, actually. At a junior level. But now I was talking to someone who was in the government and his perspective was the local startups that have grown right from C to Series A to growth stage and to going public. They have the whole spread, but they also have the executive leadership and they also have built out a whole bunch of talent that kind of have that networks. And they also have a long-term interest in growing the local talent pipeline in a different form and fashion. So I think there's an interesting dynamic, like you said, where it's like you said, there's a crowding out of young startups. But the issue is not you're not crowding out young startups. You're crowding out future unicorns or large companies that could come out of this crop of young startups, right? That can really build up yeah. that full executive leadership. So I think it does that crowding out is, I think, is much less obvious, right? Because nobody cries about a young startup not being able to do it. But if we crowded out a future creative or razor or grab or gojack, then I think it's much less obvious. Well, I mean, even Grab and Gojek, all these guys, like, they don't have the bulk of their technical talent onshore in Singapore because there's just not enough people. Like, they all have engineering centers in India, in China, in Vietnam because you just can't get enough bodies. Of course, Singapore wants to attract talent to Singapore, right? That's the goal of the government. But there is a sort of positive knock-on effect for the region as a whole, right? So if there is a model of a Singapore startup where maybe you have some core senior talent in Singapore, but your much bigger sort of engineering teams are actually in Vietnam or other places, it's not the perfect, it's not the platonic ideal, perhaps, that the policymaker thought of when they designed it. But actually, for at the ecosystem level, it actually could be long-term. I agree. And I think side note, of course, was I thought it was interesting to have a lot of these productivity solution grants for local small medium enterprises to upskill and change. I think productivity continues to be a bugbear for not just for Singapore but Southeast Asia as well, in terms of productivity for the small medium enterprise. I think Singapore. I think this is a mindset problem. This is a mindset mindset? problem. I don't think this is. I don't think this is a software problem, honestly. I mean, have you seen some of these grants? They're like, hey, make a website. Hey, use a CRM. I mean, I think software is the least of their problems. It doesn't matter if you've implemented the software, if you don't have the mindset to think about 
hey, how does this software like accelerate my business? I think in some instances, these grants, while well-intentioned, lead to kind of people trying to game the system. Because it's a subsidy, companies who are accepted into the program will mark up their list price. And then the net to the company is the same, right? As if they bought it not through the program, but the company providing it gets this markup that the government is funding. I would be very curious to see how we measure after these SMEs implement this software, is there really an increase in productivity? I'm skeptical. Yeah, I, I think it's subsidy, but also I think competition is needed. And I think one example was I was working with a second generation in luxury distribution and sales. And there's a big competition because he's actually trained in tech and he's just in a cash 22 where he's like trying to implement omni-channel online sales. And the, the old guard, right, and his father and so forth, they're very focused on saying, well, we will let you do online sales if you can prove to us with data that online sales works. And then he's like, but that's not doable unless we change the system, right? If we change, we have a website and all these things. So like you said, it's a mindset, but there's also a generational change dynamic, right? And I think it just boils down to the leadership saying like, hey, there's a burning platform and we have to change, right? And that's when the subsidies will be helpful. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Do the thought experiment, right? Would you be better off sending all the taukes to management training versus subsidizing them buying software? I think they're subsidizing the taukes kids who are ready to take over. <laughs> and that's how you get your mindset change, right? You know, the ones who are willing to prove that there's a new, fresh way and take it forward. I think there's a generational shift, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that's probably hopefully what will drive it. But I think the SME mindset also is how do you go from a sort of scarcity, break even type of mindset to like, okay, what is a step function change we can drive in this business? And I, I think that's actually much harder because you don't necessarily have the talent, even if the next gen is very capable, they have to revamp the whole staff. Not even their own father or mother or whatever. It's like whoever is in the business today has some older way of doing things. And you have to basically either retrain them or you need to turn over that staff population. And I think that's hard. But maybe it's an opportunity for a roll-up. <laughs> <laughs> I have faith. I have, we have faith in next generation Talkalism. Talkay kids and roll-ups uh, for... Everybody else, you just get quiet and cash out and you sell it to a nice roll-up approach that will give the efficiencies and tech. And no, because, because everybody always yeah. thinks their thing is worth more than it is. And they think they want to give it to their kids. So I think, yeah, even roll-up, not so easy. Uh, true, true, true. But sometimes the <laughs> kids don't want to take over and so they say, might as well cash out and play golf and then divide the cash and let the kids do whatever they want with their life. And that's... I think yeah. what the roll-up folks are finding is a compelling sales pitch to it, which is like, hey, your kids don't want to do it, right? Let's uh, take over. I think we've definitely seen that pick up actually quite a bit in Singapore, for sure, compared to the region for now. So it would be interesting to go to market, I think, for a lot of startups as well. Yeah. And on that note, obviously, the big question about labor and turnover and so forth is chat GPT and generative AI. And I was talking with some creatives today and they said like, wow, this felt like landing on the moon kind of moment, right? Because they typed in and they said, hey, can you generate a script for us? And then 
put a bunch of localization requirements and it got sped out in three seconds. And it was not great, but it was pretty serviceable as a first draft. And they were like, and more importantly, it was done for effectively free, right? And three seconds. Um, so versus if they were just to brainstorm it, it would take them at least an hour just to get started after procrastination. So yeah, what are your thoughts about generative AI and everything at a high level first before we talk about Southeast Asia? I mean, I think it's awesome, right? Have you seen the graph of the chat GPT adoption? It's like literally straight up. You know, it's like for startup usage of products, how long did it take to get 100 million users? And there's like Facebook, Snapchat, WeChat, whatever. And then there's literally chat GPT. So it's just like a vertical line. That's how fast it's gone. And so I think that's like crazy. My view of it is that it basically is going to make the bottom of the or the left end of the distribution like it's going to move the bar on that right so if you are a manual lower skilled person you will be replaced by chat gpt because the quality of your work was sort of like that very serviceable left end of the distribution anyway and now you been made free right so there's a free alternative i think the high end is still going to be fine so if you are picasso you're not going to get replaced because you are coming up with original stuff you're not just doing something derivative of everything else that has been available on the internet and then in the middle ideally you can be using chat gpt driven tools to make yourself more effective to increase your productivity and so then it's about like other skills that are not core to the functional expertise, managing teams, delivering outcomes, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. But it's fascinating. I mean, I was talking with an investor and she was saying, oh, I have an analyst that, you know, does translation for me. English, Chinese, Chinese, English. And uh, I tried some of the documents in ChatGPT, and it was 95% there. And she said, I might replace my analyst because ChatGPT doesn't have hopes and dreams to manage, doesn't have a bad attitude. So that's what I mean, right? I think the soft skill stuff, which if the stuff you do is like pretty routinized and you don't have a good attitude, you're going to get replaced. But then that's when the other stuff becomes more important, which is like, ChatGPT is just a tool. It can't deliver an outcome unless it is harnessed effectively. And so how effectively can you harness it and other resources to deliver an outcome for your enterprise, your team, whatever it is. But I'm really excited, right, about how this is going to open up lots of things. And there are things where, like, somebody built a little demo where there was a gardener who was not very good at English. And basically a ChatGPT interface for his customers but he's a good gardener and it basically just made it much easier for him to interact with customers to build his business to invoice on time things like that because it sort of removed that language layer and so i think that's pretty cool right that you could improve other people's earning potential just by easing this communications layer and so those are some interesting sort of initial demos that i've seen separate from the like hey make crazy art or compose bad love poems on Valentine's Day. Well, those are always fun. 
And it was, like you said, I was mind-blowing. I was playing around with Mid-Journey for the picture. And, and I'm not a designer or illustrator, but there was some stuff that I made really great in 20 seconds. And I was just like mind-blown. And I think the superpower here is you make somebody who has no expertise in something get to a pretty average level. But if you're, like I said, if you're average or displaced, and actually I'm a little bit more pessimistic about what you said, because I think you implied like, okay, yeah, if you're bottom, you get replaced. And then in the middle, you still have a chance. And at the top, obviously, you still have a calling and passion. But I think we're going to get barbelled a lot more, which is, I think this is, I don't know, the mechanical weaving loom. I was like, historically, everybody all weaved themselves. Everybody grew their own cotton. Everybody weaved themselves, the fabrics, and everybody sold their own clothes. And suddenly, I think, you know, this mechanical loom basically displays all the weaving. And I think there's just going to be like factories where there's going to be like chat GPT is being scaled to millions of billions of pages, I'm just saying. And I think there's going to be giant factories of content mills just like spamming the internet. And I think you're right. I think, and that's, I think going to eat up most of the middle. I think the middle is going to disappear a lot more within that tin layer. And I think, like you said, the high end will still exist, but I think it's much thinner. So I was discussing with a writer, right? And he writes business articles. So he's basically saying like, okay, this month, the macroeconomic change because of these three key factors and whatever. And we just talked about it. We said, yeah, that job is gone. It's like, he can do that job a little bit more in Southeast Asia for another one year or two. But there's nothing stopping an American person to simultaneously create a daily updated version for every single country, every single market, every single vertical at the same level as he does. And so we were just chatting, like, maybe what he needs to do is he needs to go into, like, autobiographies, right? Because it's hard to do an autobiography. Well, no, no. I mean, I think, I, I, I mean, but I think there's a difference, though, between information and insight. So, yeah, if his writing is just regurgitating macroeconomic facts, yeah, he's going to get replaced. But presumably, for a business reporter, you have some insight, right? Like, maybe not everyone is Matt Levine from Bloomberg. You have to make sense of what the facts are telling you. And I think... That's still quite hard for ChatGPT to do, right? Which is, it can pattern match. I mean, it has the entire internet, right? So it can pattern match off the past and it can say, this thing is like this thing, but it's not that funny necessarily. It doesn't have a voice. Those very human things, human qualities. And maybe it'll get there, right? Because it can imitate the voice or of other things it finds. But I, I still think insight is the challenge. It's investing, right? People always want to think it's like very numbers driven. And it's like, we already have the technology to automate numbers, right? And there's obviously like high frequency traders and things like that from people who trade very quantitatively. But there's a whole actually vast field of investing where everyone's looking at the same numbers, but they're actually coming to different decisions. They're making different calls and different insights. And so judgment, I think, really matters. Point of view matters. And so uh, I'm like maybe like slightly more positive there. I, my counter-argument is that I think you think too highly of most of the writing out there. Oh, no, I don't I, like I, I, most I, of the writing out there. Okay. I, I yeah. would say most of the writing's not that good. They got to step up their game, but like they're actually capable of that. It's just nobody has asked them to do that. But it's like sports writing, right? It's like team A played team B. Player team A said this. Star player team B said, It's like boring, right? Like, yeah, a machine could do that, and they could do that before ChatGPT. People were already producing sports news with automated scripts but really great sports writing like it's funny it's exciting you know it, it's like it's worth reading
But I agree. The vast majority of stuff today is drivel. It's boring. It's mediocre. It's not interesting. But this is maybe a call to these folks to actually make it more fun and interesting. I agree with you that insights, for me, by the way, I don't call them insights. I, the way I've been framing it is I call it secrets. Like, even secrets, which is a form of insight, I think that's where you'll beat the AI, right? I think I'm, most I'm, people I, are not I'll, insightful, is what you're saying. That's, that's what, what, that's what, what I'm you're saying. actually saying, Jeremy. And I think a lot of like humor, for example, I love improv and comedy. I think a lot of it is actually formulaic. And for most people, it's great. I mean, I always remember watching America's Funniest Home Videos, right? And I loved it as a kid, very formulaic. But when I watch it as an adult, I'm just like, okay, a lot of people getting injured but not dying is <laughs> kind of like a very good formulaic humor type for kids, right? And I also agree with you that judgment is key. I just think that's hard. And I think, like you said, I think people have to flee, I think, away from descriptions and pattern matching to insights and judgment. But let's see. The question, of course, is like, how does that apply to Southeast Asia, right? Because I think a lot of folks are like, okay, all this news seems to be coming from the US and there's a lot of US press and a lot of, PC, a lot of US affiliated folks, including ourselves in Southeast Asia are playing with it. But what does it mean for Southeast Asia? For me, I'll just start off my first thought. My first thought is a lot of this fundamental research is being done in the US and in China, right? And so there's an awkward reality where just a lot of the gains for the fundamental learning models, the fundamental research is being done in the US and China. Russia is nowhere near a good example. Like historically, it's been good at computers, and, but they're nowhere near for artificial intelligence or these general understanding machines. But lots of countries around Southeast Asia, they're all in the US or in China, right? Building these AI machines. So I think a lot of value is going to be captured by the folks who are actually building these learning models. So I'm thinking through what else is the implication for Southeast Asia. What are your thoughts? What does ChatGPT enable people to do? It enables people to generate ideas, right? By drawing on a body of historical content. It allows you to like, summarize and synthesize blocks of text effectively. And so I think if you look out where it's been rolled out pretty quickly, right? Notion rolled out an AI feature. Microsoft, of course, with their investment has talked about how it's going to be integrated into Word and all of their productivity suites. And so I don't know, a very silly outcome is maybe people will write better emails. Maybe it'll be better English. It's not exactly world changing. Like, I think I'm curious to see how it shows up in sort of business tools, right? So it's not going to be a standalone product. It'll be integrated in business tools. Maybe it'll enable better interfaces and communication. I think on the art and generative art stuff, like I would expect you to have it in Canva in Adobe, in all of these like standard authoring tools to get you started on thinking on your project before you kind of actually do the work. We have a portfolio company here in Singapore, actually, that has integrated some of these features into performance reviews. So people hate writing performance reviews, and it basically assembles all the things that feedback you've given to an employee over the course of the review period, and then it generates the draft performance review. So you just go and edit it rather than have to write it from scratch. But I think the fact of the matter is still in the early stages of SaaS here in, in Southeast Asia. And so, you know, it's harder for me to imagine where would Grab integrate 
generative AI into calling cards. I don't want you to get creative. I just want you to get the card to me now. And I want to go to my destination. I don't want you to do anything else. But I think down the road, I could see use cases in underwriting, so in fintech, in medical, right? Taking sort of all this like data and structuring it. But I think maybe the second or third order effects is, have you seen the co-pilot, GitHub's co-pilot? Um, like helping more people level up and write better code? Maybe down the line, you take all these bootcamp grads, you take all these young junior people, you give them these kind of tools to supercharge them. And then that kind of accelerates their learning and enables them to create more and better things. But I don't know. My imagination is kind of sucking this morning. What are you picturing, Jeremy? I think there's some interesting opportunities. I think one that I can think of right now is concierge services. So historically, you could build a relationship with someone and you have repeated transactions over time and you build like a portrait of you. And that happened human to human, right? Insurance agents and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a good example. And most companies gave up on that because that's for high net worth individuals, et cetera. But for most people, it's just transaction by transaction, right? Because it's easier to automate the slice of the transaction. Really, generative AI plus knowledge of history, et cetera, could actually generate quite a high fidelity concierge that couldn't have existed. And it can feel like a concierge. And more importantly, it will be much more instantaneous and reliable than the actual concierge because concierges, unfortunately, are only available nine to five, Monday to Friday, Saturday at 4 a.m., your insurance agent is not going to answer a question for you. But you can imagine a generative AI. I don't know whether your insurance agent is using a generative AI at that point of time, but it could help the insurance agent project that, oh, I totally saw this at 4 a.m. and I totally sent my message at 7 a.m. with a very targeted, thoughtful response. And then the person woke up in the morning, edited a little bit and sent it out. I think there could be a real superpowering of the concierge where it'll still be a human actual face, but in the background is actually a bunch of scripts yeah. to make them 5x yeah, for more sure. clients, right? For like, sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, so all of these are like agent-driven service-based industries, right? But I think it always goes back to this control. Like how much control do you have over the core training set, right? How much do you allow the individual human to change things and... Because it's definitely not 100% AI, right? Because you would take the human out of it altogether. And then I think humans can tell it's not a human. But is it 5%? Is it 30%? I, I think those things are interesting. Like I did a project for Stitch Fix where there's a stylist, but there's an AI that generates the clothing recommendation. And I think the scientists would want it to be 100% AI. But I think the reality is that humans actually like having a human who will pick out things that an AI won't notice and tweak things and adjust them. And maybe over time, you hit a point where you don't need the human anymore, but I don't know. I still think that people can tell the difference when it's not a human over yeah. repeated interactions. Yeah, well, I think that might be like the fuddy daddies who care about that. You know, I was like watching Dota 2 finals and I was like, I remember it's like this whole arena, right? And there's all these nerds and I was there because I used to play a long time ago. I'm not, as active these days but I was like in this arena and I was thinking to myself oh my god the nerds 
have become cool, right? Like we have the million dollar prize, we have the fireworks. <laughs> and a generation ago, my parents just thought that computer games were like a really bad sport and nowhere an acceptable game for kids to play. And the next generation now is mobile games, right? They don't even do computer games. And so I feel like you're right to say like the current consumer who's buying consumer stuff wants some human content or more human content on average. But I expect that the next generation as they get younger and they become more AI native in that sense, I think they would require less of it. Maybe they need well, 10% or 20%, you know? No, or it becomes handcrafted artisanal stuff becomes even more prized. Oh, for sure. Because that I, becomes I predict, the scarce, like you can yeah, generate yeah. anything, but like, hey, you spent 100 hours knitting this thing, right? It's hand knit. Like that stuff costs more, right? And so that performative quality of making the thing yourself, that will become more valuable. Um, I think so too. It'd be much smaller. I was just thinking to myself, like, Back in the day, leather handbags were just mainstream. You had a cow and then it, it was nice to you for 10 years and then you killed the cow and then you made it into a bag. That was like our parents or grandparents' time, right? But now leather is this luxury good in handbags. Nobody uses ballistic nylon for their, or sackcloth for their handbags. But now, but there's only premium leather left, mainstream leather <laughs> called Old Betsy. Doesn't exist anymore. I think it'll be a much smaller quantity. It'll be much more luxury and much more performative but maybe you know all those people who don't need to do their jobs 40 hours a week anymore because generative ai is doing it for them will have free time to then handcraft yeah, more things free time to what i know because they're free time to fall in love with their generative ai romance partners which by the way i think is gonna be a real thing i literally just read an article about this person he was grieving over his yet fiance and he trained the ai to speak with the voice, right, to some extent, right? And the style of his dead fiancé. And so he used that to process his grief and so forth. And obviously, the story ends with him moving on because he uses that to get his life in control. But then I was like reading the story, and I was thinking to myself, like, I don't know, my grandkids could fall in love with generative AI, right? Yeah, it's interesting I mean, you could dynamic. fall in love, but it's like anything else, right? Like, you could fall in love with a voice and a point of view, but, like, can't have lunch with generative AI. Can't. Play tennis with generative AI. Generative AI is not going to keep you warm in your bed at night. You know, I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I feel like I know for sure that I'm going to be part of the generation that's going to be like this, leading this countercultural movement to keep love human or something like that, right? It's less about the fact that I think it's going to happen to some extent, but I just feel like there's going to be a, a counter reaction to it as well. So I think it's going to be an interesting dynamic, right? It's what we talked about. Yeah, but I mean, the, it's like people are already like obsessed with like, anime or movie stars or whatever like the human brain has an incredible capacity to like create connection to distant things that have no relationship no real relationship to you right bts does bts know you exist no but bts loves to sell you stuff right but you can still feel all this stuff right but i mean there will just become more and more versions of this thing and maybe that becomes atomized right and it's not that everyone is obsessed with one rock group you're obsessed with your own produced version of things wait but I don't you and know. i just I, came I, out I, with I, a billion dollar idea we sell a generative ai that pretends to be bts with the video the syncing you feed it your bio data and then bts guy just falls in love with you organically that's a billion dollar idea there i mean like why do you even need cameo anymore right like you could do cameo 
without the human talent. There's enough material out there that you can make videos of any famous person saying whatever you want. Yeah. And uh, maybe you give them a license fee, but you don't have to pay them the whole thing because they don't actually have to physically spend any time anymore. And I think I believe in that. And I think one of my things I believe is that it's going to displace a lot of creative talent. So Darth Vader already sold his voice rights, right? Darth Vader's voice can be used forever and ever and is being cloned forever. But I think, unfortunately, of course, Leia, she passed away. But there's a lot more Star Wars movies in the future. And they already generated several versions of her being de-aged or CGI'd already. And so, to some extent, actually, I think historically, a movie could not continue the franchise if, with that actor or actress because that person's passed away. And that role would have had to be given to a young, new person, new blood. But that role is just going to be continued to be filled to some extent that amount of screen time. And so I, I think one thing that hasn't happened is since the original trilogy, Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, and Leia have not reappeared as a reunion since the original trilogy. And my big prediction is that it's going to happen again. Disney is going to pay enough money to make this digital recreation. It's going to happen in five years or 20 years. But <laughs> I think all three of them will have sold their digital rights. And then we're going to have a reunion and they're all going to be 100% generated. It's crazy. Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? Do we value those as much? Does it matter? It's like how like you can have sequels. I, I always feel sequels are not as good as the original, but maybe that's being me, cranky old, old person. And then does it get diluted? You're on the 10th Star Wars or the 20th Star Wars episode. Like, that's a hard one. And then you lose the promotional activity, right? If you don't have a physical live actor, then who do people go see? Like, you can only see the movie. You don't have other sort of spinoff things to do with it. It'll be interesting, though. I'm curious to see how that goes. I mean, Disney has no problem with infinite copy and paste of Mickey Mouse, right? And various characters, right? And lifetime value is long, right? You start with kids and you keep going and... There's an amusement park. There's so many ways to consume that same piece of content in different contexts. That's true. That's true. There's that oh. Bob Iger interview where someone asked him, can IP be overexposed? And he was like, no. Good stories. Like, you can't have too much of them. And I was like, do you have a small child who's made you watch Frozen a million times? Because I really think you can have too much exposure to IP. But yeah, it's a good question. Exciting times ahead. I mean, children actually psychologically cannot get overexposed to stuff. They love repeating stuff. Adults have a shorter attention span slash ability to see repetitive content. On that note, actually, I was thinking to myself recently, you and I actually now are immortal already digitally. So that's something I was thinking about. Like both of us have appeared online. We have our voices. We've talked. We've bantered. We have our WhatsApp messages. We have our email stuff. You want to do an only... episode just with generative AI versions of ourselves? Like, we don't talk. Talk. We just... we just see what it comes up with, and then we have the audience judge. Like, does this sound like Jeremy? I mean, there's no law preventing you from generating a generative AI version of someone else, a public figure, or you in a public domain. So I think what's interesting in my head, I was realizing, was like, there's going to be a generative AI version of ourselves already. Like, I'm already immortal because in 50 years' time, someone just pulls the podcast and the notes and just pulls it. The only decision is what level of resolution I grant it, right? Either I put up, I don't know, like a creative comments and say, do not create a generative AI version of me, please. 
or it's going to be like, you can use public domain stuff of me, or you can hear some, a nice curated subset of materials I can use to populate your generative AI version of me. Or I'm going to give you everything, my Chrome history and everything. And all I'm just trying to say is like, there's enough digital footprint today to basically breadcrumb our way into immortal versions of ourselves. So it's kind of a weird thing to realize that I'm now immortal as long as I grant the rights of my digital footprint for <laughs> folks to feed into AI. It's weird, actually. And it's super weird. You should do it. You should build a, a little bot because you have like two years worth of podcasts and stuff. I'd be really curious to see what comes back out. It's like, you know, it's like, you know what? Frankenstein, like the story of the person creates something. And I think that'd be interesting. I mean, I don't have as much material as you do, but it would be a fun sort of weekend project to play with. Well, only for the public stuff. If you choose to grant it your WhatsApp and your emails. Oh, that's too generative much. AI. That's, I think that's too <laughs> much. It reviews all your catchphrases. It reviews all your hopes and dreams. I don't know what's in your WhatsApp, Jeremy, but mine is generally coordination and logistical. My hopes and dreams are not communicated a lot in WhatsApp. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, but I think, remember, it's another thing which is like digital legacy, right? When you die, your accounts and all that stuff goes to someone that you nominated in your will or as a custodial guardian, right? And there's a weird piece I can imagine in the future is your guardian gets all your stuff and then the person's like, I'm just saying, okay, here's another startup idea, right? Your generative AI, you, the guardian gets to deposit the stuff and creates a generative AI of you. So I think that's actually right. a great idea. I think that's great. Someone should do that. Like a digital tombstone, uh -huh. but it's like a digital, and oh, it's like a seance. Like those, like, what's it called? Oh my oh, God, yes. You know, like. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The, You're like talking to the dead, right? You're asking them questions. Oh my God. Yes, I see us. <laughs> and then you do that at Hungry Ghost Festival. And, uh, oh, you know. Yeah, yeah who, now you have literal ancestral spirits. You can literally be like, Oh, Shiyan from 100 years ago. What do you think about me feeling lonely today? And then Shiyan's like, I believe in you. Get over it, dude. You can do it. <laughs> Don't worry, dude. It's like, <laughs> Don't worry. Go outside. Make some friends. Talk to some people. Oh, that would yeah. be really interesting, actually. That would be a fun weekend project. We Just should build a bot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be yeah. very entertaining. Well, on that note, glad we got to discuss a lot of different things. Budget winners for Singapore, crowding out startups, generative AI barbell versus insights and secrets and judgment. And then we started brainstorming about how we can localize this in Southeast Asia. Agent and concierge, creative industry, digital tombstone, ghosts. So that was a fun chat. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.